I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with us, especially glad to have you. I normally will do a special welcome to you, and I'm doing that right now. But today, I really want to take a moment just to um, to say something to all of our regulars, those folks who call Solid Rock your church, uh, your church home. Like, I'm just so honored to be a part of your life and um, to be loved by you. Um, I love you so much. Um, I'm I'm just truly overwhelmed this morning with gratitude for this church, uh, the people of this church. Um, again, the way you love one another, the way that you're working uh, through um, your relationship with Christ with one another, the way you pursue reconciliation, uh, whether that's reconciliation in a marriage, reconciliation with another believer, reconciliation with God. Like it's just such a, such a beautiful thing to watch you be the church. And so thank you uh, for letting me be a part of, of the Solid Rock Church family. It truly is an honor. I mean that. If you're, if you're visiting today, um, let me just say this is not a perfect church. Um, but it is a perfect place for you to encounter um, a perfect God. And so um, if you're visiting with us, invite you to consider making this your church family, your church home, and uh, let us know how we can assist you in that. Uh, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can do that. Uh, just a couple quick announcements I want to make. Um, if you haven't heard this yet, um, our family that serves on mission internationally um, is home right now. The Rathbuns are home. They made it back uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, doing really well. They were here for the first two services today. I think they just slipped out to grab lunch, but um, be sure that when you see them, give them a big hug. Uh, tell them you're glad to see them, glad that they're home. They're going to be now in what we call a furlough phase, which is where uh, we do some, spend some time kind of assessing how the last two years have gone, uh, talking about the future and where to go and what to do next and just praying through that. So um, feel free to, to pray with us as the Rathbuns are here um, on furlough and they're going to see them every Sunday. Jeff's going to be serving throughout the week. And so they'll be around uh, for a while. So glad to have them home. Uh, also, if you're um, interested in serving with us this uh, spring break, this coming week um, in our local mission outreach, um, need to register today. Today's the last day to do that just for planning purposes. And so if you aren't sure kind of what we're going to be doing, uh, we've got four days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of this week. There are three time blocks each day, morning, afternoon, evening. You can sign up for one time block or all the time blocks or anything in between. Um, and, and so I want you to know that the, the idea is that you don't need to show up really prepared. Like we want this to be so practical and so easy that you're able to see how whatever we do through this mission, mission outreach activities, these are things you can do with your family in like everyday life. And so if you sign up for the morning block, you'll show up at a certain time. You'll get all the training information resources you need to go um, out with the group and do whatever that particular um, activity is at that time slot. So um, if you haven't signed up though, please do that today because we need to get a head count and start making our, our plans for this week. Um, so I want to make, make you aware of that. Uh, we are in our uh, Sent Sermon Series. This is week two. Uh, today, again, we'll be in uh, Acts chapter 9. Last week, we looked at, from Romans 10, what we mean by sent life. What is a sent life? And we looked at how um, living a sent life means that you live your life in such a way that you, not your friends, not your pastor, but you have been sent into the world with a mission for Christ. And we also talked about how um, God's plan uh, to bring salvation to the nations, to your coworkers, to your neighborhood, uh, is through the mouths of his people, that you and I would go as his ambassadors, living as though he has sent us into the world to share the good news of Jesus. And so this week we're gonna look at is who God sends. The title of the sermon is Jesus sends the unlikely. 
We're going to be looking specifically at Acts 9 at this character by the name of Saul. A couple of things about Saul just to get started. Um, Saul will later on be referred to in your Bible after Acts 13 as Paul. Same guy, okay? So, but at this point in time that we're reading about in Acts 9, Saul is not even a Christian, much less a church leader. Not only is he not a Christian, we're going to see today, he's leading the charge to persecute the church and to stamp out Christianity. And so while we could have really, we could have turned to any page in your Bible and pointed in whatever character that is on that page, you could say is an unlikely person to be used by God. Arguably, when you get to the New Testament, one of the least likely candidates is the guy we're going to be talking about today, Saul. And so we're going to start in Acts 9, uh, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." So we're getting some indication not only of what Saul is up to in life, we really are seeing some things even about his heart attitude towards Christianity, towards the church, and ultimately towards Jesus. So what Luke records here, that's who's writing this down, is that this is what Saul was up to. He was still, meaning he's been doing this for a while, breathing threats and murder against the church. Now, the verb here in the original language for breathing threats is the idea of speaking slander or abusive language towards somebody. But as uh, the the, the pastor theologian R.C. Sproul, who recently passed away, notes about this, this is not the idea of exhaling. It's actually a picture or a verb that would be used to describe a wild animal that is kind of snort growling when they inhale. It's like this bull in the ring focused on the object of its wrath and he takes that deep groaning inhale of anger. That's a description of Saul and his attitude towards the church. Now we read that he is still doing this, which means then he's been doing this. So we're gonna back up now to Acts. Let's go back to Acts 1 uh, verse 8 first. So in Acts chapter one, uh, Jesus is about to ascend back to uh, the right hand of the father. And this is his marching orders for his followers. This is Acts one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says to his followers, guys, I'm I'm about to go back to my rightful place at the right hand of the Father, but it's okay. I'm sending my spirit, and when my spirit comes upon you, you'll know it because you'll boldly proclaim who I am, and you'll take this message of hope from Jerusalem to where? Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Okay, well, fast forward a few chapters. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, the church is growing, and the apostles need some help. So they recruit some help from some of the guys there in the church. And two of those guys were Stephen and Philip. This is Acts 6. Well, no sooner than Stephen gets recruited to help in the church than he becomes arrested in Jerusalem. So the very next chapter, Stephen's arrested. So imagine signing up for, to be a community group leader in the church or a team leader, and the next thing you know, you're in handcuffs being marched down to city jail. 
So this is Stephen. He says, yeah, I'll help with the church. Oh, boom, arrested. And then he's asked to recant. He doesn't recant. Instead, he, he stands up and he preaches Christ there uh, in front of those who accused him. And then at the end of Acts 7, they drag him out to the edge of town and throw rocks at him until he dies. So then chapter 8, verse 1, look at what we read. This is Acts 8, 1. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So whenever we get to Acts 9 and we read that Saul was still doing this, this, this is why, because he was killing Christians in Jerusalem, putting them to death. And this is a terrorist against the church, right? But what I also want you to see here in Acts 8.1 is that Saul is leading this great persecution against the church. But not only that, did you notice what happens? Once this great persecution arises against the church, led by Saul, what happens to the followers? They disperse. Matter of fact, the rest of chapter 8 is, is a story of Philip taking the gospel to where? From Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what I want you to see is how Jesus is accomplishing his mission without Saul. You see that? Jesus is accomplishing his mission through Saul before Saul is ever a Christian. While he's still leading the great persecution against the church, Jesus is using him. Now, why am I making that point? Because it wasn't as if Jesus was looking down on Jerusalem and saw Saul Saul, and said to himself, man, I really need that guy on my team. I could really accomplish great things if I could just talk him in to becoming a Christian. Like we could write books together and uh, we'll, call, we'll put them in the Bible and a lot of people will get saved. And man, if I could just get Saul to believe in me. And what we see in the, as the book of Acts unfolds is Jesus is accomplishing his mission with or without Saul. He didn't need Saul. And we're going to see today through the remainder of Acts 9 how Jesus instead chose him and didn't need him. Verse 3. So now, this is Saul. Again, he has gone to get written permission from the chief priests to arrest Christians, to drag them back to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now I want to talk for a minute about how Jesus interrupts Saul's life here. I don't know if your life has ever been interrupted by Jesus, but uh, this was the last thing that Saul expected to happen. Right? He's on his way to arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem to put them to death. And on the road, this Jesus appears to him in this bright light 
and it, and it blinds him and knocks him to the ground. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul. Now, when you read that type of greeting in the Bible, what you're reading is a very specific kind of greeting. This is the kind of greeting you would give to invoke both importance and also kind of a personal intimacy, okay? It's the same kind of thing we see like when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God. Or when he's lamenting over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. We see this all throughout the Bible. When this is references used, when you call to somebody this way, it was a very intimate and very personal and a very significant greeting. It carried with it this sense of angst, like I really need you to listen to me. And so we see Jesus meeting Paul or Saul here on the road in a very personal and intimate way. And then what's interesting is what Jesus says to him next, why are you persecuting me? Because see, here's one that's interesting. At this moment, Saul did not know he was persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. He didn't believe in the resurrection. He thought he was persecuting Jesus' followers. He thought he was trying to stamp out the church. And now Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, what you're doing is very personal. You are persecuting me. You are attacking me. Jesus' number one enemy is right here on the road to Damascus. And it's not, he's not confronted the way you or I might expect him to be confronted. If we were reading the same story and we, what we read was at just the right moment, Jesus sent a lightning bolt from heaven and struck Saul to the ground and he turned to dust, we'd go, <laughs> yeah, you show him, right? That wouldn't catch us off guard. But what Jesus is doing is he encounters him in this personal way, kind of catches us off guard. Why are you being so nice to him? Right, why, why are you giving this guy another chance? As I was reading this passage this week and studying it and kind of meditating on this particular moment in the story, I thought about something else Jesus had said before this time. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is with his followers and he's, he's teaching. This is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives some very specific instructions on how his followers are to interact with their enemies. I'll just read a few verses from Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, if we had read Matthew 5 with, without even thinking about Acts chapter nine, it might just sound like practical advice, things that Jesus wants us to do the way he wants us to interact with our enemies. But when we read it in, in light of Acts chapter nine, what I think we're seeing is a foreshadowing from Jesus of how he interacts with his enemies. He's not just calling us to arbitrarily be nice to bad people. What he's saying to the church and to his followers is, guys, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you because that's what I do. Now think about it. Let's drive this home a little bit further. 
It's no, it's no great leap to see Saul as an enemy of Jesus right here, right? I mean, come on. But I think what we fail to remember as Christians is that the Bible says that you and I, before we came to Christ, we were enemies of the cross. In our rebellion, in our sin, we were enemies. And so this is not only how Jesus confronts Saul, this is how Jesus confronts us, isn't it? He comes to us, his enemies, in a very personal way. Jason, Jason. He calls your name. He intimately invites you into a relationship with him. Though every one of us deserve to be struck down by lightning like Saul, yet he doesn't. He comes to us in his goodness and his grace. Now, We'll continue reading here because now we're going to be introduced to another character by the name of Ananias. So let's track what happens with Ananias. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look at a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen a vision, or he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is a beautiful portrait of what we mean by living a sent life. Let's talk about Ananias' first response. Here I am, Lord. Now, that response is a common response we see in the Bible when God calls to someone with specific instructions. We see it in Abraham's example multiple times. We see it with Jacob. Uh, We see it with Moses. We see it with Samuel. You see it in Isaiah chapter six where he says, here I am, send me. Well, back in December um, during our, our Advent series, we were in the book of Genesis chapter 22 and we talked about how God came to Abraham and, and, and spoke out Abraham and called to Abraham. And Abraham's response, you remember, to God was what? Here I am. And we talked about how that was not Abraham signaling to God where he was. It wasn't like Abraham was like, hey, God, I'm over here. I'm over here. He wasn't giving away his location. God knew where he was. What Abraham was doing is he was posturing his heart in submission to God and essentially saying, here I am, speak. Your servant is ready to do whatever you ask. And so when we see that response from somebody in the Bible, here I am, what they're saying is, God, I hear you speak that I might listen. And so this is Ananias' response. He has no idea what Jesus is gonna ask of him. All he knows is he hears the voice of the Lord through this vision and his response is, here I am. What would you ask of me? Now, Jesus is gonna ask something pretty big of him. Hey, Ananias, I want you to go to this specific street 
and there's a very specific house. I want you to go inside, and inside you're going to find Saul. And I want you to go, and I want you to lay hands and pray on him. Now, did you catch Ananias' response? <laughs> that sentence started with, but. <laughs> but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And not only that, he has written permission to come to Damascus and arrest Christians and take them back to Jerusalem and throw rocks at them. What? It's almost like Ananias is like, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He's a rough cat. Like, let's, let's just make sure this, the, make sure I heard you right. Is this the guy you want me to go to? And you can, you can sense in Ananias' questions in his, in his words there some hesitation, can't you? Yeah, and you can understand it. Like, really? For me to do what you're calling me to go do, could cost me my life. Like, if I go do this, within just a few days, I could be dead. Now, I love how Jesus responds to Ananias, and what he doesn't do is try to talk Ananias into it. Right? He doesn't address Ananias' fears, like, hey, calm down, it's gonna be okay. Take a deep breath, we'll work through this together. Right? He doesn't do that. Hey, we'll figure this out. It's going to be okay. If he tries to kill you, I'll just strike him down again with light. It'll be fine. Did you catch Jesus' response to Ananias? He said what? Go. He said go. Ananias, I get that you're scared. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Living a sent life is not without struggle. Very real struggle. We were talking about this in our community groups this week and in the, the community group discussion I was involved in, we just talked very openly and honestly about our struggle to live a sent life, to go to people that are in our life and to share with them the hope that we have in Christ. We talked about, you know, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do it. I'm not sure how to respond if they ask me a bunch of questions. Um, we talked about our personality struggles. Some of us are shy, we're introverts, and just some of us don't even know how to start conversations with people we don't know. Now, if the other person starts it, we're good, but we don't know how to start a conversation. And we talked about all of our apprehensions and our fears that keep us from living a sent life. And I look at Ananias' example here. And Jesus doesn't come to us and say, now listen, um, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out. Jesus just says, go. Why? Did you catch the certainty with which Jesus spoke to Ananias? He didn't say, go, I'm hoping to save this one. What did he say? Go, I've already chose him. Ananias, the results of this mission are not dependent on you. Whether you have the right words to say, whether you, whether you can answer his questions. I mean, let's think about if anybody at this day and time was more equipped to tear down Christianity with questions, right? It's Saul. I mean, he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He knew the Old Testament front and back. If anybody was gonna ask hard theological questions of Ananias, it's gonna be Saul. But with, so, with certainty, Jesus says, 
go. He's my chosen instrument. He's essentially saying, Ananias, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just inviting you to be a part of it. Come be a part of what I'm going to do. I'm saving him. Matter of fact, I'm gonna use him to take the gospel to Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. I've already planned that. This isn't contingent on you having the right words. I'm just calling you to go. Just go. And what I love about this story in this chapter is how we see Jesus orchestrating this interaction with Saul and speaking to him through a vision and at the same time orchestrating through the life of Ananias and and speaking to him through a vision. Did you catch the details? Like he's not just telling Ananias, hey, go to Damascus and ask around, see if you can find this guy. Is he? He's like, no, Ananias, go to this street. Here's the name of it. Go on that street to the house of Judas and inside you're gonna find a guy named Saul. He's already had a vision and in that vision, I told him you were coming. You see Jesus just orchestrating this beautiful moment to save Saul. And so when you think about living a sent life and we think about Ananias' example, listen, God's not calling you to save people. You can't save people. He's just inviting you to come participate in that which he's already doing. He's working in your life and he's working in the life of the person you're gonna talk to and it's up to him to make the connections and it's up to him to save. God's calling to us is an invitation to come be a part of what he is doing. He's saying to you, come be a part of what I am doing to save the nations. Come be a part of what I am doing to save your coworkers. Come be a part of what I'm doing to save your neighbors. Come be a part of what I'm doing to to save your family members, your schoolmates, your friends. He's not calling you to go save people. He's inviting you and calling you to come go with him as he does this work. And so all of our hesitations very real hesitations about not knowing what to do or what to say. They're very real. But Jesus says, perfect. That's who I want. I want the person who doesn't know how to do this to come go with me. So let's look at what happens, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, (laughs) brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man, the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's a pretty dramatic change, isn't it? From the beginning of the chapter, who are you, Lord? To now going out and proclaiming, Jesus is the Lord. 
Paul encountered Jesus in his grace and his mercy. Saul believed in Jesus and was saved. Saul was then baptized. And now here's my question. How long before Saul began to live a sent life? Did he immediately go out and start proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel with anybody who would listen? Or did he press into the other Christians who were more mature than him to grow and be discipled and to learn? Did he immediately become the apostle Paul who writes most of our New Testament? Or did he have to go spend time with with the apostles and learn about the fullness of who Christ is and, and what it means to be the church? Here's the question, here's the answer to that question. Yes. It's not either or, it's both and. I love the way this is worded. Look at, look at verse uh, 19 with me again. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. How long was he there? We don't know. But he immediately began to press into those who were already Christ's followers to learn and to grow and to be discipled. But that didn't keep him from living a sent life. The very next verse says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. It's both. From the moment he was saved, he was qualified to go and to share and to proclaim. Did he have it all figured out? Not at all. Matter of fact, there at the end, you see that he started sharing the gospel so quickly that even his own reputation hadn't caught up with him yet. Did you see how the people were responding? Wait a second, this guy preaching, wasn't he the same guy wreaking havoc in Jerusalem? Isn't that the same guy that came into town like a few days ago with a letter from the chief priest saying that he could arrest us and now he's preaching Christ? I'm confused. How did this happen? And so we see from Saul's example that living a sent life comes with a risk of reputation. Not everybody's gonna get it, okay? Case in point, I love when, and this has already happened a couple times today, I'm not gonna point anybody out, but I love when people who knew me as a kid and as a teenager, um, because I grew up not too far from here, actually will come visit or attend our church. Um, Because you need to understand, I was not voted most likely to become a pastor in high school. That's not what my yearbook said. Most likely to go to church was not the thing I was voted most likely to do, okay? And, and so th- I hope that there's a transformation here. I hope that gives me the opportunity to say, yeah, look at how good God is. He calls jokers like me. Really, you're a pastor? I know, like it's pretty amazing. And, and I see that here in Saul's example, the people are like, really, you? And what a beautiful testament to the goodness of God, right? Like that's how good his grace is. Saul didn't wait for his reputation to get cleared up. He didn't wait for things to become safe. The uh, persecution he rolled out was still alive and well. Blazing hot persecution against the church. He was the one who started it. And now he's got to lead the church that's suffering from it. Think about that. And he didn't wait until he had all the theology figured out. Living a sent life means being driven by God's ability to work through you. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God desires to do through you. I'll give you an example of this, just practical illustration. So um, a few years ago, when I turned 40, uh, Hallie and I got to travel to Europe. 
It was something I always wanted to do. And so since it was my birthday, she let me pick a few of the spots that we went to. And um, the, the highlight of my trip was Oxford, England. Um, it's a place I wanted to go um, since being introduced to Lord of the Rings and uh, J.R. Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis. I wanted to go to Oxford and just see and to go sit and eat fish and chips at the, the Eagle and Child where they used to exchange manuscripts. And I was so excited about Oxford. Well, um, we did a Airbnb when we were in Europe. And so we stayed in a small town outside of, of Oxford. Um, Insham was the name of this little sleepy little England town, cobblestone streets, the whole nine yards. Uh, one place to eat in the whole town. And so we arrived in Insham uh, in one afternoon and we wanted to eat lunch before we jumped on public trans to go to Oxford to begin our, our experience and our journey there. And so we ask around at the little convenience store, like, where's a good place to eat? And they're like, well, there's only one place to eat. It's the pub down the street. And so we set off um, to go eat. And so we sit down at the table and as kind of is my practice, if I'm at a new place, the person comes over to wait uh, the waiter, the waitress, I always ask um, a question like this, like, hey, what do you recommend? I think I, in this particular situation, I said, hey, there's a good chance I'm only gonna eat here once in my life. What would you recommend? And without hesitation, the waitress said, you're having the lasagna. And she wrote it down without me even saying, that's what I wanna have. She just immediately said, oh, you're having the lasagna. Who else, who's next, right? And, and so here's the thing, like she brings this lasagna out in this little porcelain bolt, bowl, and it looked like normal lasagna, steaming hot. Y'all, I'm telling you, it is the best lasagna I have ever eaten. And it kind of caught me off guard because I didn't go to England to find good lasagna. Maybe good fish and chips, some green peas, but if I want a lasagna, I'll go to Italy. Completely caught me off guard, but it was so stinking good. Like in the words of Joey from Friends, I would walk back to England for another one of those bad boys. I'm t- like, I mean, like if I had the opportunity to go back to Oxford in my itinerary, it's gonna be Insham lasagna. I'm gonna have it again before I die. Now, I'm saying all that to say, um, if you were to come up to me and ask me, um, well, what was the name of that little pub that had the restaurant? I don't remember. Okay, okay, well, this lasagna you say was the best lasagna you ever had. What was in it? I don't know. Like, what were the ingredients? I don't know. All I know is it was good. Like the best lasagna I've ever had. You know, okay, well, was it, was it vegan? I don't know. God, I hope not. <laughs> was it gluten-free? I don't think so. But here's the point. I don't know the answers to all those questions, do I? I don't even know the name of the restaurant. But, I, but I'm telling you, it's the best lasagna I've ever eaten. I tasted, and it was good. Now, apply that to our relationship with Christ. Listen, Christian, you don't have all the answers. You don't know all the ingredients. You don't know all of the theology that you will once know one day. But if you're in Christ, you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. And not, just not knowing the ingredients doesn't keep you from bragging on lasagna, does it? In the same way, not understanding everything about theology, knowing the Bible back and forth should not keep us from proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. If you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good, you can't not talk about him. That's why Saul immediately began to proclaim. I'm sure the other apostles at times had to pull him aside and go, hey, 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 that's not right. Come here, come here. So here's how it works, book of Isaiah, and they make the connections for him. He's like, oh, okay, okay, and he's excited. He's preaching again. And, and there's another point probably where Peter pulls him aside like, hey, 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 hey. That's not quite how it worked. Here's what, yeah, Jesus didn't feed 12,000. He fed 5,000. You know, making corrections and coaching him along the way. 
But Saul had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, and he immediately began to tell people about it. There's a, uh, speaking of Oxford, England, um, just a little bit about Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, if you're one of those people. If you're not, it's okay. Um, A confession, in case there are any real fans in the room. I didn't read the books first. I watched the movies first. That's how I was introduced to Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. I know some of you, you gotta read the books first. I agree, it's good. But I watched the movies first. And whether you watch the movies or read the books, there is this undeniable reality about the character portrayal of Frodo. And, and one, one of those character realities is that Frodo is presented as the least likely person to be able to save the day. I mean, not only is he a hobbit, he's a very inexperienced hobbit, right? And so all throughout the story, there's this, when I'm first watching the movie for the first time, I'm like, Frodo, give the ring to Gandalf. Holy cow, you're a teenage hobbit. Give the ring to Gandalf. He'll wave his flashy wand. An eagle will fly down. He'll jump on the eagle and fly that ring to Mordor and we're done, right? But that's not how it unfolds, is it? And, and, and Tolkien labors to make the point that in order for the ring to be destroyed and the day to be saved, it has to be Frodo. And so as a reader, you're asking the question, why? I mean, even at the last minute, right, where they're, they're at Mordor and it's him and Sam Wise and Frodo's just spent and done. I'm like, finally, somebody else grab the ring and take it and throw it in the fire. And Sam Wise says what? Frodo, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And he picks Frodo up and begins to carry him up the hill. And even at the last minute, Tolkien wants us to see that to save the day required the least likely candidate to do it. And what Tolkien was trying to capture is what we're talking about today. God's salvation comes to the world through the least likely person. Raise your hand if that's you. It's me, okay? And if you're super qualified, I envy you. That's awesome. But God still doesn't need you. He's inviting you to participate in that, which only he can do. He's saving the world through us. Let me say one last comment before we wrap up. We're about to sing a song that we sing here often. The chorus says this, Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. For endless days we will sing your praise. That's a pretty bold statement about who we are saying we are as a church, right? Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. For endless days we're gonna sing your praise. Can I just share with you the measure of the authenticity of whether or not we mean those words, um, the measurement is not how loud we can get in here. I love it when we sing out together and you like drown out the band, but that's not the measurement of whether or not we mean those words. You know what the measurement is of the authenticity of our worship inside these walls? It's how we live for Christ outside. That's the measurement of whether or not we mean it. That's the measurement of the sincerity of our worship. It doesn't matter how many people gather in this room and how loud we get with our songs. The measurement of the authenticity of our worship will be how we live for Christ as sent people outside these walls. So let's, let's land here today as we invite our worship team up and also invite our prayer partners to come up as well. Um, I don't know how God maybe has spoken to you today, challenged you, maybe even brought in some conviction and, and you just needed to deal, to deal with that. When we stand to sing, I want you to feel free to either stay seated, you can stand and sing. Um, you could grab one of our prayer partners and let them know what's going on, let them pray with you. 
If you're here today, listen to me, okay? If you're here today and you, not talking about your parents or your grandparents, if you have not had a personal encounter with Christ, like, the, like, like what we just saw with Saul's life, I want you to know Christ is calling you today. I believe you're here on purpose. I believe Christ is orchestrating things, stirring things in your life, and maybe you didn't even realize it till right now that God had a purpose for you being in this place at this time. I believe Christ is calling to you the same way he said, Saul, Saul, just put your name in, in those spaces. And he's calling you and inviting you to trust in Jesus, to take a step of faith and to believe that what Jesus did on the cross, it's enough for you. It's enough to pay the penalty of your sins and that Jesus rose from the dead to give you eternal life. And if that's you, for, I'm gonna pray for you, but I'm gonna encourage you to do something courageous. When we stand to sing, would you step out of your row of seats and, and grab one of our prayer partners and say, listen, will you pray for me? I'm, I'm, I made a decision to trust Christ today. Let, let them pray for you today. Let's pray together and we'll respond. Um, Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. And God, thank you for the way that you have stirred in us this desire and this passion to know you more and to make you more known. Father, we desire to be a church set on fire with this passion and this desire to tell the world that we have tasted and we have seen the Lord is good. Father, I also pray for the person who's here today who does not know you personally, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would take a step of faith and trust in Jesus. We pray all this in his name.